Isn't God good? Go ahead and grab your seats. I want to just welcome everyone who's joining us online. Those of you at our Mesa campus, at Fountain Hills, at South Mountain. It's a great day to be in God's house worshiping together, isn't it? Well, we're in a series in Exodus, and I'm just going to jump right into it. Uh, going into Exodus chapter 2, a message today titled, From Tragedy to Destiny. And if you have a Bible and want to follow along, I encourage you to do that. The scripture will be up on the screen as well. But at this church, we just believe in God's word and its authority in our lives today. And how many of you know it's not an old book, it's a timeless book. It doesn't tell you what did happen, it tells you what always happens. So in Exodus chapter 2, it says this in verse 1. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. Come on, what mom doesn't think she has a special baby? But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to go get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess and asked this question. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses. For he, she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We open it today to learn and to grow, to be more like Jesus. Speak truth to our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, hey, I want to just jump right into this, and it kind of starts out on a somber note. Uh, you can't help but admit that when you think about Pharaoh ordering all the Hebrew baby boys under the age of two to be thrown into the Nile River as a means of population control out of fear that the Hebrew people might someday rise up against him. So, you know, I mentioned this previously, but this is really the first government-sponsored nationwide post-birth abortion mandate in history. And Pharaoh, he issued this abortion mandate to control the Hebrew population out of prejudice and fear. But it wasn't just the most convenient way to kill these little baby boys. It was likely also an act of worship. He likely was sacrificing these little baby boys to the Egyptian gods like Sobek or Hopi, the gods of the Nile, as like an offering to them. These gods were gods of sexual fertility and prosperity. In a similar way, the Canaanites, they would sacrifice babies to the false god Molech, Scripture talks about. And they would literally put babies up on the flaming, hot, burning altar and let these babies be consumed as, a, as an offering to this false demon god. See, abortion and killing babies has always been demonic and connected to worship. In our day and age, we have the Church of Planned Parenthood, where people still go 
to worship the false demon gods of sex and money. People basically want to be able to have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want, without any consequences, and the Church of Planned Parenthood allows them to do that. People, they don't want babies to interfere with their career goals, so they go to the Church of Planned Parenthood, where they can continue to worship the gods of sex and ambition. And and so we see this play out time and time again. It's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing as a result of sin. And that's why we should take time to celebrate the victories when they do come. So I saw this yesterday. CNN reported that in 30 days since Roe v. Wade was overturned, 43 abortion clinics have closed. Isn't that awesome? There's less demand. So we praise God for that. But I think about what was going on in Exodus chapter 2. And in, in the midst of this tragedy, God delivered one special baby named Moses in a supernatural way. And that must have been such a huge relief for his family, right? But I can't help and wonder, what about all the other families? What about all the other Hebrew moms? How did they feel when they saw Moses, maybe for the rest of their lives? And so I want to make some points today. If you're taking notes, you, you can write them down, but it'll help you follow along. Here's the first thing I want you to think about. Favor isn't fair. That's my first point today. It's not what you wanted to hear. That's what you need to hear. Favor isn't fair. Have you ever felt resentful that someone else has something that you wanted? If you're human, you probably have, right? Uh, maybe you're a single gal, you want to get married, and all your friends are getting married, and you feel a little jealous, you know, like, she's not as pretty as I am, and she doesn't dress as cute as I do. Like, what could he possibly see in her? Like, you know you think that way sometimes. Come on. Or uh, maybe you got, you got a couple friends around you, and they're all getting pregnant and having babies, and you're not getting pregnant. Or, or maybe, you know, your buddy, their business is growing and expanding and yours is struggling. And, and in those moments, sometimes you can ask the question like, well, why am I not experiencing the same results that they're experiencing? Like, well, what did I do or what didn't I do that, that I'm not seeing that kind of blessing in my life? And that's why you got to understand favor isn't fair. It's normal to, to want something that you long for or you lack Don't forget, though, that a lot of times the people who have the thing you want, they also have problems of their own that you don't want. But it's normal to have that human emotion of just longing, wanting, feeling like you're missing out. And so I wonder if the other Hebrew moms felt resentful thinking back on the story of Moses and how God delivered him. Like, you know, well, my son was taken from me and thrown in the Nile. Why didn't God save my baby? Why did Moses' family get spared unthinkable pain, but not the rest of the Hebrew families? Why does God show favor to some, but not to others? There's a medieval Hebrew saying, if I understood God, I'd be God. So when I read this passage, I, I can't help but wonder, you know, okay, God, I mean, from my point of view, if you were going to deliver your people anyway, Why not intervene before this madman killed tens of thousands of innocent babies? We we ask questions like this, you know, and and let me tell you the answer. I'm here to give you answers today. Here's the answer. I don't know. Why does God heal some people and let other people die of cancer? I don't know. Why does God let some couples struggle with infertility when other people get pregnant from a one-night stand? I don't know. Why does God let some people die while others walk away from the same car accident? I don't know. 
And it's okay to be perplexed and confused by life. It's okay to be mad at the depravity of man in this fallen world with its sickness and death and pain. But let me help you today. I want to tell you what's not okay, because I care about you and your relationship with the Lord. It's not okay to be mad at God. And I've heard a lot of Christians throw that phrase around a little too casually, in my opinion. You know, like, I used to be really mad at God. you got to understand, it's okay to be honest with God. I, I preached a series about prayer and how you should bring your feelings to God and be real with God. It's okay to be mad at the world, mad at sin, mad at evil. But God is never to blame when things go bad. He's never to blame. See, when you're hurting and disappointed, it's normal to want to blame someone. And God's a pretty convenient target for a lot of people. You know, I'm just going to blame God because, you know, he should have done something about this. We, we think if we can blame someone and channel our grief and anger and disappointment into someone, that will bring us peace. But it, blaming other people doesn't bring you peace, does it? And when evildoers do get justice, that's good, but that still doesn't ultimately bring you peace. you got to realize this. All sin, suffering, sickness and death were ushered into the world by the sinfulness of mankind. And we're all complicit in that. So that means God is not the source of our problems. God is the answer to our problems. This is why good theology is important, okay? So if you let yourself get mad at God, you're pushing away the one person who could bring peace and comfort to your pain. That's why we never cast blame on God. We bring pain to God. Lord, I need you. I'm hurting. God, I'm disappointed and I'm frustrated. I'm confused and I don't know what's happening. I don't even know why you're letting me go through this. That's okay. It's okay to be real like that. But it doesn't make sense to be mad at God because to be mad at God implies that he did something wrong to you. To be mad at God implies he let you down or didn't come through for you, and that's just not who he is. In Psalm 92, it says, The Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in him. Let me, let me tell you what I deserve. I deserve eternal damnation. Okay, I, I deserve hell. Anything besides that is a blessing that only comes from God. Jesus saved you. He changed you. He filled you with the Holy Spirit. He sets you on the path to life. That's called favor, and that's not fair. That's not what we deserve. Jesus already told you, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So he told us we were going to go through hard times, didn't he? Why, why, why do we get so surprised when they actually come? It's like, Jesus, you, you told me this was going to happen, and I'm still not loving it. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 9. So this is the New Testament now. And it's kind of referring back to some of what we're reading in Exodus. It says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Go to verse 20. It says, watch. But who are you, 
a human being to talk back to God. Wow. That's not me talking right now. This is just God's word talking. I'm just, I'm just delivering the mail, okay? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter, that's God, have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purpose and some for common use? So, see, here's what this is referring to. God raised up Pharaoh and made him king and hardened his heart for the purpose of destroying him and displaying his power. And we as humans, if we're being honest, we would look at that and say, that doesn't seem really fair to old Pharaoh. And here's what God says. Who are you to, care, to say what's fair? Who, who, who are you to, to question me? I'm God. And here's what God says. I can do what I want. And a lot of people are like, but I didn't vote for that. See, it's not a democracy. He's God. We're creation, right? So, so God, he sometimes does things that don't seem fair. Maybe they don't make sense from a human perspective. And it's good for us to be reminded, oh yeah, he's God. Who am I to question him? What I know is he's good. He has a plan, and he's working all things together for good. Favor isn't fair, and we often bemoan the lack of fairness in this life, but fairness looks different in eternity. Judgment day will be very fair. Judgment day will be very fair, regardless of how wealthy you were in this life, what country you were born into, what ethnicity you came from. Every single person will be judged according to the same standard. Did you accept Jesus or reject Jesus? Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life or not? It doesn't matter how rich or powerful you were, whether you were a CEO or president or celebrity. If your name's not written in the Book of Life, you're going to have to pay the price for your own sins, which the Bible says is the lake of fire for eternity. Same standard of judgment for everyone. Very fair. But then when it comes to God's people, most of you, God's people, like you accepted Jesus, your name's written in the book of life, you experience something very different. Your reward is very not fair. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. And you're going to be like, who, me? Uh, good, good and faithful? Okay, <laughs> like come on into heaven. You're gonna experience and enjoy God's riches and reward for eternity. See, that's not fair, that's favor. And as Christians, we live in God's favor for all eternity, not because we achieved it, we received it as a gift. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's a gift. And that brings me to my next point. Salvation comes from the Lord. So I want to give Moses' family some credit, because Pharaoh issued this decree, hey, we're going to kill the little boys, and Honestly, most people probably just kind of went along with it out of self-preservation. But Moses' family, they said, no, no, we're not doing that. And we saw the first act of civil disobedience in chapter 1 with the Hebrew midwives. And then here's the second act of civil disobedience where Moses' family disobeyed the governing authorities because Pharaoh's order 
conflicted with God's moral standard. And they feared God more than man. It talks about this in another New Testament passage in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says this, It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's commands. Okay, so I just have to ask you today, Christians, what would you do if the government forbid you from going to church? What would you do if the government made the Bible illegal and declared it a book that incites bigotry and prejudice? What would you do if if the ruling authorities made it illegal to try to evangelize or convert other people or tell other people the good news of Jesus Christ? Would you just give in to save your own skin or would you stand up and do what's right? It's good to think about these things ahead of time. So you can pre-decide, hey, I wanna honor authority until what man's authority says contradicts God's authority and then I'm gonna stand up for Jesus. And we see through that passage that faith in God allows you to overcome your fear of man. So we gotta give credit to Moses, his parents, and his sister Miriam for coming in clutch. Let's be honest though, from a human point of view, their plan was not exactly genius. You know, like with my, with my military background, I think about the situation. I start coming up with like plans and I'm like, I'm thinking like, okay, special operation here. We're going to hide the baby in a wagon. We're going to get him out of the country. We're going to smuggle him out of the country with some, you know, Midian traders and get him out of here. Covert operation. But that's not what they did, is it? They just got their baby and they put him in a basket. And then what? That's it. They just, they just put their little baby, and you see we got a little baby here with his appropriately tan Middle Eastern skin. <laughs> they just put this baby in their basket and they said, okay baby, here's hoping for the best. They set the baby in the river among the reeds. You stay, sister, she snuck back and the Bible says she just watched. Can you see me back here? No? Good, because I'm hiding. <laughs> they just, just watched. Like, and I can only imagine, you know, if baby Moses could talk, he probably would have said, come on, guys. This is the best you could come up with, you know. I'm just here in this basket waiting for crocodiles to eat me like a little baby calzone. This isn't that great of a plan. But you see, I think their plan was so simple because they were so helpless and they knew that they were dependent on God to come through for them. Sometimes we overestimate our own ability to fix our problems, and we underestimate God's power to come through in the midst of our problems and save us. They knew that if this baby has a chance, it's gonna be God who saves him, not us with our cleverness or our hard work or determination. And as bad as the situation was, it was bad, they knew that with God, anything is possible. It reminds me of Psalm 62 where it says, I wait quietly before God, for my victory comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, where I'll never be shaken. See, from a human point of view, 
being saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that just doesn't seem like that good of a plan. It really feels like there should be more to it, right? Like we should have to do something to warrant this, you know, salvation and grace and, and heaven and, all, and God's love. Like that I think is one of the primary pieces of evidence that Christianity is the one real, true, saving religion in all of the world. Because it's the only faith system where we're saved by doing nothing. It's the only system where you're saved and forgiven of sin by just giving up and trusting God. That proves that no man created this religion. Come on, you know it's true. No human man is creating a religion where he doesn't get any credit for himself being saved. And that's why every other religion, it's salvation through works. Every other religion says you gotta, you gotta go to the right church, you gotta give the right amount, you gotta go on the right mission, you gotta achieve the right level, and that's how you get into you know, whatever it is, heaven or nirvana or the celestial kingdom or enlightenment. Like it's always, it's always me and working and doing, but that's not how it is for us. Only Christianity as expressed in the Bible says you can't do anything to save yourself. You just trust Jesus and Jesus saves you. That's how it works. And I know some of you, maybe you're coming from other backgrounds and you're like, but Pastor Ryan, that seems too easy. Honestly, it is too easy for us because Jesus already did the hard part. He's the one who paid the price for our sin that we couldn't pay. He's the one who died in our place. He's the one who rose again. And he just asks us to trust him. It's, it's faith. And we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's how, how Christianity works. God does the saving. We just do the praising. That's how it works. God just saves you. Your job is to just praise him. Praise him with your lips. Praise him with your life. Sing praise and worship. That's why we do that when we come together at church. Can I just be honest for one minute? Sometimes God does a lot better at the saving than some of you do at the praising. And I know, you know, we have a really good worship culture in our church at all of our campuses. And I have friends come to visit sometimes and they'll be like, man, people actually worship at this church. That's, that's like they actually love Jesus or something. And I'm like, it's true. I'm really, really grateful for that. They do. But not everybody. And I'm not saying this to, you know, guilt trip anyone or condemn anyone or try to manipulate anyone. That's not it. I'm just trying to be real because I care about you. I get worried about some of you, especially the men. When I see some of the same guys who profess Christ with their mouth get more passionate about a touchdown than their salvation. And so then I wonder, what's going on? It's, it's got to be one of several things. Maybe you come from a different type of church or denominational background, and you've been more discipled by culture than scripture. And you don't know that the Bible actually commands us to sing and worship and clap our hands and raise our hands and, and make a joyful noise to the Lord. Maybe you didn't know the Bible actually says to do that. Or um, maybe it's a pride issue. I know a lot of guys struggle with pride, you know, and they think like, no, not me. I'm, I'm too cool and 
tough to show emotion. It's like, you're not that cool. Come on, we're not, we're not that cool. Or like the flip side of pride is self-deprecation, which is like, oh, not me. I'm not worthy to sing like that. I can't lift my hands in worship. You know where those hands have been? Which again, it comes back to, it's not about you. It's about him and what he deserves. He deserves our worship. And then, I think another reason people don't worship is sometimes they let the difficult circumstances of life drown out their their praise. And they just let bad situations stop them from worshiping their good God. And if you're in the middle of a bad situation today, or you've been going through a hard time, maybe recently, this brings me to my, my third point. God, he can use tragedy to carry us to our destiny. And we'll often wonder, you know, why does God let me go through tragedy? Usually in the moment, we don't know why until later, you know, we can often look back and see, oh, here's, I see now what God did with that situation and how he used it and he, he worked it together. And some of you, you maybe have gone through a tragedy. You're still waiting for the answer. Why did God let me go through that? How could anything good come from that? But whatever the source of your pain, you know that Scripture says God works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we have that promise, but I think about the disaster facing the Hebrew slaves and the king ordering their baby boys to be murdered. And you can just imagine, imagine living in a city where cries of anguish and hopelessness are rising up, cries of lament to God are are rising up in the streets as mothers and fathers mourn their lost babies. And yet God used that disaster to bring a deliverer. And, And baby Moses, who was put in this basket, this word in Hebrew, this word basket is teva. It's the same word used for Noah's ark. It's the only place where it appears in the Old Testament scriptures. Moses' basket and Noah's ark. In both situations, God used teva as a vehicle to carry his chosen from death to life. And in Moses' situation, from slavery to royalty. It's, it's interesting to me that it played out that way. God used this river that was meant to drown Moses to carry him to his destiny. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God let Moses be raised by Egyptian royalty? Well, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen talks about this. It says, The king exploited our people and oppressed them, talking about Pharaoh forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Then look at this. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and And action. Okay, so I want to make some points because we're talking about Moses and tragedy and destiny. I got a few sub points here for the type A note takers. Here's the first thing. Destiny doesn't always come easy. Okay, we we often think about destiny and we hear about destiny in a sermon like this. I don't know about you, but I'm like, okay, bring it on. Serve it up on a silver platter. But that's not how it worked out for Moses' family. His parents, they had to actually 
put his baby in a basket and, and put him in the river, and that took a lot of faith. And then, think about this. The princess found the baby, and Moses' you know, sister, just like a little girl, comes up to this princess. How bold and audacious, right? Just like, hey, I noticed I uh, found a baby. I just happened to be walking by. You want me to go find someone who can nurse that baby? And that's bold, right? That's pretty bold, right? And then the baby's mom gets paid to nurse her own baby? I know some moms out there, you're like, I should be getting paid for this. <laughs> Moses' mom actually got paid. Pay that woman. See, usually what God does is he'll put a shovel in your hand and he'll tell you, go dig your destiny out of the ground through consistency and hard work and faithfulness. That's how God usually leads us into our destiny. And it's a lot scarier to follow God's plan for your life and, and seize destiny than it is to just settle for mediocrity. Here's the next thing. Destiny requires a new mentality. Moses came from an enslaved people. His people, they weren't educated. They weren't formally taught. They were just taught to obey commands. They lived in fear of punishment. They were dependent on their masters. And God knew that Moses couldn't lead free people with a slave mentality. And I feel like someone today needs to be asked, I wonder if any of you have already experienced salvation through Jesus Christ, but are still living with the mentality of a slave. And, and, and I've seen Christians who, who walk around saved, but thinking like a slave. Like, God, man, God couldn't use me. God, God couldn't possibly use someone like me. I'll always struggle with this sin. I'll, I'll always come up short. I'll never be good enough. No, 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 no. I'll always be poor. I'll always be overlooked. I'll always be last. That's a slave mentality. And there are some people that would encourage Christians to have that. But it looks entirely different being raised by royalty, doesn't it? I mean, I, I can only imagine the way Moses thought being raised by a princess as a prince, right? He probably thought differently. It probably sounded more like what I've read in my Bible, like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Or, you know, I am more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. I will be the first and not the last. I will be the head and not the tail. Right, that, that's, that's like how a son who belongs to a royal family might think. And God used that in Moses to equip him for his destiny to lead God's people. And then I want to make this point. Destiny isn't determined through biology. And some of you today, you might have been born to uh, an alcoholic mother or an abusive father. But that doesn't determine your destiny. Moses... He was born to slaves, but he was destined for greatness. And so God took him from poverty and slavery to the palace where he was raised by royalty. That's powerful. So this is, this is interesting to me. I just want to read you this excerpt from a, a, a Jewish commentary on this passage. So this is from a Jewish perspective, not necessarily a Christian perspective, but I think it's helpful. It says this, regarding the role of Pharaoh's daughter in Moses' life, the Talmud, the holiest Jewish body of literature after the Bible, edited between 200 and 500 years after Jesus, and comp comprising 63 volumes of philosophy, theology, ritual, and ethical law and stories, states, listen, 
Yokoved gave birth to Moses. That was his biological mom. Batia, the Hebrew name given to Pharaoh's daughter, meaning daughter of God, raised him. Therefore, he is identified as her child. In other words, even though Yokoved gave birth to Moses and even nursed him, the Jewish tradition regards Pharaoh's daughter as Moses' mother. As important as birth parents almost always are, and Yokoved was, in most cases, blood is less important than actually raising a child when it comes to assigning the title mother or father. So what this tells me, this goes back to Jewish tradition all the way to the time of Moses, that with God, what you do in reality, it trumps your biology. God's more concerned with your heart than your genetics. And you might come from a long line of addicts or sinners or abusers or failures, but you can break that generational pattern by choosing to follow Jesus. So what you actually do is more important than who you were born to. And I think this is interesting that the Jewish tradition considers Batia the mother of Moses because she adopted him and named him and raised him. That's powerful. But then there's an even higher level type of bond, and it doesn't come through practicality or biology, but through theology. And I want to kind of build something here for you. Okay, Hebrews 11, watch this. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. Okay, so this is really powerful. It says, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What's that about? What's that about? Okay, so it's not like, it's not like Moses became a rebellious teenager. Like, I wish you weren't my mom. You're not my real mom. That's not, that's not what he was saying at all. It's saying by faith, he chose to leave the rights and the riches of royalty, the, the easy life in Egypt, and associate himself with the people of God. Because he didn't know the name of Jesus yet, but he was looking forward to the person, the Messiah who would come, and the reward before him was greater than the riches that he left in Egypt behind. And it happened by faith. So watch this, by blood he was born a Hebrew, by adoption he was made a prince, and by faith, he was made a child of God through spiritual adoption. So I have a daughter named Lila, and she's adorable. Come on. I will use pretty much any excuse to show a picture of her in a sermon, because what dad doesn't want to show pictures of their little kids? This, this is her in the nursery, in little G's. That's why if you're a parent, it's good to put your kids in kids' church and the nursery, because we'll teach them how to love Jesus and serve him. And see, one of the blessings of becoming a father is you understand God better when you become a father, right? Before I became a father, whether I realized it or not, I had a little bit of a performance-based perspective on my relationship with God. Like, yeah, I know that he loves me because the Bible tells me so, but it's really hard to believe sometimes that he likes me, let alone listens to my prayers when I've been acting like a fool over here. 
But then when you become a father, you get a different perspective on how fathers think about their kids. We had this experience with Lila a couple weeks ago where she woke up in the middle of the night and she started coughing, had this just really weird breathing sound coming from her chest and kind of concerned me. I'm, I was a little scared. And so I was like, let's go. We got dressed. It was the middle of the night. We got dressed. We left the house in an instant. We drove to an urgent care in Chandler because it was the only one that was open. We got there. Poor babies, you know, confused and scared. Why do I not feel good? Where are we? The doctor there says, you need to take her to the ER. And so we drove to Mercy Gilbert to the emergency room. And they were great. They took care of her and gave her treatment and stuff. But, you know, it's like it didn't matter that it was late and we were tired. It didn't matter we had to drive off in the middle of the night. I didn't care how much it was gonna cost. I didn't even care that she had scratched my face earlier that day throwing a temper tantrum. <laughs> All I cared about was my little girl needs help and I'm gonna get her help. Doesn't matter what I have to do or what it costs or what's on the line, like I'm gonna take care of her and think about it. I'm just a selfish, sinful dude, and I take care of my daughter that way? How much more does your Father in Heaven love you? How much better care is He going to take care of you? He's a good father, but then one of the blessings in disguise that we experience is our daughter is adopted. And so she came to our family through adoption, and I realized that through adoption, I've, I've been allowed to understand my own salvation better. Before, you know, I, I believed that God loved me. I believed I was saved. But if I'm being honest, I always thought that he must view me kind of like a second-class citizen in heaven. You know, like he, he, he's letting me into heaven to just sweep the streets of gold. And I'm just going to be like, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> right? But that's not how adoption works. Is it? And, and not a lot of people understand this. We've experienced it, me and Amy. People sometimes, when it comes to things like pregnancy and, and fertility and adoption or foster care, sometimes people say insensitive things. They don't always realize what they're saying, but we've had people say to us, like, oh, well, what happened to her real parents? And we're like, we're her real parents, yo. No, no. I mean, like, her real father. I'm like, listen, Karen, whoever changes the diapers is the real father, okay? But what you gotta understand is adoption is not a secondary type of bond or consolation prize. Let me show you a picture of our daughter. This is the day she was adopted legally into our family. And because it was 2020, we had to Zoom with the judge but I didn't mind because it saved me a trip. And so here we are, we go through this process with the judge on the computer, we got our family around, and in the process, the judge asked us a series of questions. And it was at this moment, she asked us, do you understand this decision to adopt this, this child is permanent and irrevocable? And we said, we do. She said, do you promise to care for, protect, and provide for this child's needs? We said, we do. So do you understand that this child will have the rights of inheritance as your legal heir? We do. And she said, do you understand that this child's name will be changed to Lila Visconti upon this judgment? 
We said, we do. And we're like crying. And the baby's crying, but not because she's happy, just because she's a baby. (laughs) But see, her life started at conception in the midst of tragedy. And God used that tragedy to carry her to her destiny. That's how God works. Salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation came from the Lord for Moses. And then 2,000 years ago, salvation came from the Lord again for us. See, we were dead in sin. We were headed for destruction. We were slaves to sin and helpless. Moses got a basket. Noah got a boat. We got something better. We got the Son of God made flesh. And I want you to understand this, that Jesus came as the new and greater ark and Jesus carried us from death to life and from slavery to royalty. That's what Jesus did for you. Through Jesus, your adoption into God's family is permanent and irrevocable. God promises to love you and care for you and provide for your needs according to his riches and glory. You receive all the legal rights to inheritance as a co-heir of Christ Jesus, and you receive a new name. You're no longer named by your past sins. You're no longer known as a cheater or a liar or an adulterer. You are now known as a son or or a daughter of God. And that's why it says in Romans chapter eight, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. That's the same term that Jesus used for him. It's a term of, of closeness and intimacy and relationship. He's your father and, and he loves you. So I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes right now. At all of our locations and online, maybe there's someone here today and you'd say, I want to be a child of God. And you know in this moment that you're far from God and that sin has separated you from God. And here's what you need to know. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So maybe you're here today and you're like, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. The Bible says it's really simple. You just trust in Jesus to save you and he does the heavy lifting. It's a gift that comes by grace through faith in Jesus. So if you're ready to take that step of faith today, wherever you're at, nobody's looking around, just pray this prayer with me. I'm going to lead you in this prayer. It's not a magic prayer, but if you just really mean it, God's going to hear you and he's going to respond to you. So pray this with me wherever you're at. Just say, God, I need you. I know that I've sinned and I need your forgiveness. I believe in Jesus, that he's the son of God that he died for my sins and that he rose again. I trust in Jesus to save me. I believe I'm forgiven. I believe I'm loved. And I believe you receive me as your child. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just keep your heads bowed. Keep your eyes closed for one more minute, wherever you're at. Listen, if you just prayed that prayer between you and God, be bold right now as a child of God and just raise your hand up so I can celebrate with you. Awesome, sir. Anyone else? Say, that's me. Just raise your hand up. Great, great. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you to our camp, South Mountain and Fountain Hills.